We're here at Urtech 2022. We're shuffling through and around the corner to see the Geolog booth. These are the guys that got us here on the first day. They've been doing a great job picking out the value of the data from surface equipment, from surface logging. It's not downhole, it's surface logging. And these are the Geolog guys right here. This is their booth. This is where we're set up to do podcasts. I started off undergrad physics. Okay. I then did my master's in isotope geochemistry, did a PhD in isotope geochemistry. I then went back to Australia because I did that in Japan. I then went back to Australia, worked in the minerals industry for about eight, nine years before entering the energy. Wow. Explain to me as simple as you can, the unconventional research. Like what is an unconventional target? Do you know, when I first, when I first came over here, was it now 10 years ago now? Okay. And if someone asked me, oh, what's an unconventional? I think the definition has changed. <laughs> what was it back then? Back then it was all like, oh yeah, it's, it's that shower <laughs> reservoir, you know, we've got to frack that shower. <laughs> Now that just like uh, Bianca said, right, the whole idea of unconventional has got nothing to do with the actual um, rock itself in terms of, you know, is it a shale or is it a carbonate? It's now it's more true. Like, well, if we do hydro, uh, hydraulic fracking along the lateral well, it's unconventional. Basically, it's oh. to me, it's anything that it's a non-permeable or at least a, a rock that has low permeability. Yeah, I think to me, that's what people now consider unconventional. That's it. So it doesn't matter if it's a shale, you know, a lot of them are not tight sandstones, carbonates. It doesn't yeah. matter. Yeah. So. Okay. I like the definition. Uh, okay. So take me through what happens at, at the Houston office. You're, you're at the office. You guys have literally hundreds of units around the world. These, these hubs not floating around in space like satellites. They're hooked to the earth and they're drilling into the earth. And every one of them's at a different depth. Every one of them's at a different stage. Every one of them's bringing back cuttings. Every one of them's got a slightly more aggressive unit that's mm -hmm. analyzing everything to something that's just doing classic mud log. But all that information is coming back. It's being deconvolved. Like, what's it like at the at the hub of, of Houston Geolog? Well, luckily for me, I mean, my job is really to support the guys in the field. So, you know, the lab is there to perform some of the higher end higher-end analytical work so stuff that they can't do in the field you know be it in terms of limited manpower or equipment okay. that can't be deployed a lot of that stuff can come back so i usually deal with a lot of the cuttings um the gas stuff um, that we bring back in our priority geotubes that we use um, as opposed to the isotubes they'll all come back into our labs and at the moment that's all sort of like shipped off to milan because wow. they have the higher end machine. What's the difference between a geotube and an isotube? It's the volume of material that we actually collect. So, ah. you know, everyone knows what an isotube looks like, right? Yeah. Yay big. Yeah. Was 100 and something mils or okay. something. Um, so the whole idea with the geotube is that you're dealing with a smaller volume of material. They're only about so big. Um, and so it's a lot easier to move around, transport. Oh, wow. Um, and so it's can, just gas? It's just gas. Okay. So it's not like an isogel where you're collecting all the cuttings Li anything and Anything else with it, okay. So it's only the gas component. And it just, 
it's easy transport, easy to get to the lab for analysis, sure. and it is ready for analysis. So it's wow. actually got one of those rubber um, annulus or whatever they call it, like a bicycle in like a bicycle tube. Yeah, like so that they, they can pierce it. It's valve. Yeah. Oh, bang! So unlike an iso uh, an iso tube, where obviously you need the manifold to actually sample the gas. Oh, that's what I'm thinking of yeah. the manifold. Oh, you don't need you that don't need for, that the, for the analysis because the thing is, is samples are ready to go. It's like a CO2 cartridge in a paintball gun comes in and you just poke into it? I, I haven't been paintballing, but it sounds like it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. So you plug into that thing, strip the gas out of it, and bang, the, yeah. you got mass spec. You got something that's running analysis on that. That's right. So you can get comparable um, results as an isotope. Wow. Um, so basically all of that material can come back um, to the Houston lab. You know, we deal with it with what we can here. So all the inorganic stuff is done here in Houston. Well, we do the TOC here, the pyrolysis here. Uh, but the, some of the high-end gas work, obviously, we do need, you know, a GCRMS or GCMS. Yeah. That's all done in Milan. But because of the tubes the way they are, it's easy for us to transport over. Wow! Right on. So yeah, man. And you, so all those cuttings are coming in, all these boxes, all different wells. Mm -hmm. Gosh, dang it! You guys organize all that. You keep it all organized. You have all that stuff just. I try my Jeez. hardest. <laughs> oh the, man. The place, the place gets full. But, you know, we try to keep on top of it, making sure everything comes in, you know, making sure everything is sorted and that we know where it is. And the clients can basically know that the samples arrive and they know where the sample is going to be and what we do with it. And typically a sample is caught, what, every 15, 20 feet? That's going to depend on the client. So oh, okay. obviously you and I both high density collection is better. You get yep. more information, but it comes down to the fact that if you only have one mud logger, per tower yeah you, you can't expect them to collect every 10 feet so 100 foot drilling per hour yeah freaking more yeah so the more the better and we do try to collect at the highest densities we can but our aim is to make sure the cuttings are collected properly right so there's no point me telling you we're going to collect at 15 feet but the poor yeah. guy is running back and forth yeah and he's never going to do that. Not even not even no, taking information right. down. He's no. just got all these bags. He's like, I got it all, guys. <laughs> I don't know what it is. No. <laughs> Where's the depth? What depth was this? I don't know. <laughs> but no, I so, collected it. <laughs> yeah. So that's why, if, you know, if Geolog is on site collecting those cuttings, our aim is to make sure that what comes back to my lab is on depth um, and correctly collected. You know, washed, everything is done right. So I would wow. never promise someone to collect high density unless we know we can do it. Okay. So yeah. Right on, man. That's cool. That's pretty exciting to to see all that data, to have it organized, to to be listening to what the client and what the operators are really wanting out of this. Obviously, they're trying to do the best they can. They're trying to to make as much oil as possible, but they're really relying on you guys to to take the mm -hmm. chaos and this data and and really bring organize some value. Yeah, organize yeah. it, bring the value forward, present that value. You know, tip. Are you seeing? Right, let me ask this question first. You have a 10,000 foot vertical section and you're going a mile and a half, 7,500 foot lateral. You're on 30, 50 foot spacing, whatever that is. How fast can the lab actually get, get the, the rocky valve, out? XRF, XRD done? Like so our aim, well, my aim anyway, is to make sure that we get the most actionable data to the client as quick as possible. And obviously, rocky valve and some of those um, organic analysis take time especially with the oil-based mud, you know, you, have, yeah. you have to go through the cleaning and that Solvents takes time. Solvents and all that That's shit. Right. You gotta, yeah. So the first aim is, you know, let's get some information out to the client. So we'll always target the XRF first because it's quick, easy, and it gives you a peripheral of elemental data that you can start making 
informed decisions. Okay. And then it's like a pyramid. Once you've got that baseline, you can then make a more informed decision of, hey, do we need to do more work on particular samples? Get the isotopes here That's or right. something. Okay. So we do XID on these ones, get a better understanding of that. Okay, well, let's, let's streamline that. Let's only do a handful of TOCs. And basically, rather than just hit it with a shotgun, you know, let's, let's actually target in and sort of like yeah. snipe into the actual yeah. samples we want and the data analytics that we want. That way, ultimately, the client is going to get the most valuable data as soon as possible uh, rather than having to sift through a lot yeah. of garbage, Yeah. right? Well, you, so the last thing I want to talk about with you is, you know, you have an interesting perspective because you come from the mining industry originally. Mm -hmm. So that is, you know, hard rock, soft rock, you know, geologists, they go different ways. This one's going oil and gas and he's going to stay there the rest of his career. Most likely the hard rock guys are coming out of very specific schools that are not oil and gas schools. Like it's such it's it's just polarized. And it, it, there's a whole story to be said there on why the how how geology, how the study of the earth, which is totally one mm -hmm. thing, became so different and the models are so different. You know, that's a whole nother episode to talk about. But your perspective coming from the mining side and then watching this unconventional kind of unravel over the last 10, 15 years. What are you seeing today? You know, that's that seems to be really making kind of moves and, and doing some, sh you know, something for the industry. I, it was really interesting because the thing is coming over from the mining side. There's a lot of technology that the mining industry have used probably for the last decade. Well, <laughs> yeah. okay decade before I joined uh, oil and gas that didn't have any inroads in oil and gas. Jeez. I was a little bit surprised at that and looking into it, uh, it, it's not clear to me why, but it's the same. A lot of the technology that was used in oil and gas, some of it isn't used in mining. Yeah, what. that's it, right. But the funny thing over the last 10 years, I'm slowly seeing that's right. tools migrating from mining into unconventional. That's right. Um, yeah, some of the some of the spectral analysis, unheard of in oil and gas fifteen odd years ago. But now I'm starting to see okay. interest in oh, what can we do with spectral analysis, infrared analysis, that you know mining using for the last 20, 30 wow. years. Yeah. Um, so I am starting to see that migration of techniques, and maybe that's a good thing because oh, definitely. I don't think there's any one tool that provides the silver bullet to understand everything sure um and the more data you have the the closer you are at getting to the true answer oh because everything we do is only an estimate is only an approximation of nature that's right man that's what truth is truth is just an approximation of reality right and what is real is when you have a hard enough truth so if your geologic model mm -hmm. is true then you should be able to make real predictions. That's right. If your geologic model is not true, then you're going to fall on your face in an unconventional play. And it's not going to make a lot of hydrocarbons. So that's how true and reality work in, in rocks. And I think that's true about that's most That's true things. about everything. I mean, yeah. with my physics background, I mean, uh, and that's always a mis misinterpretation of uh, when people say, oh, well, that's a law of physics or that's a theory yeah. of physics, right? Uh, and yeah, there's huge arguments on that. And that's, it's, it's all about, in, in physics, it's all about that. We generate models of nature uh, and they're called theories. Uh, a lot of times those theories are highly accurate, but we only call them theory because you only need one data point that disagrees with that model 
and it's out the window. <laughs> and a lot of the work that's done by theoretical physicists now, you know, the um, Large Hadron Collider and all that stuff, it's focused on trying to break existing models, not reinforce it. And that's the curious thing, right? Wow. You have all these people doing research. It's not re it's not researching the current model and say, hey, how do we reinforce it? They're trying to break the break model. this thing. Yeah. And to a certain degree, that's what we should be doing as well in our yeah. industry is, OK, we have a model that we built. Yep. Um, but be open to listen to all the data that's coming in. That's right. Obviously, understanding the quality of the data. That's important. Yep. But just because a data point doesn't agree with what we believe to not discount it. Wow. Right. That's spot on. Because it, it's it's those it's those outliers that break the model and take you to the next that's stage right. of understanding. That's right. Yeah, that's the. I mean, one of the biggest gripes with machine learning and AI and all that stuff. You're taking all this data and you find the similarities. Yes. And then you model the similarities, and yeah, you get all these relationships and you get all this, you know, high R squareds and all that stuff. But it's the anomalies yes. where the real everything's really happening in the anomalies. And when you statistics that and you machine learn that it's all over the place, it can't predict any of that stuff. So there's, so there's something wrong with the model. You can statistically get something and you can math that mathematically work that out and see the relationships, the KP relationships mm -hmm. of a conventional sandstone that's there. You see the line. Okay, cool. You can do something with that. The unconventional does not, no. it doesn't have that. So what's going on? There's something with the model. You, you have to be able to see all the data, take all the data in, appreciate that data, allow it in, and, and it's there. You can't just, you know, imagine that it's not. Well, and that's and that's a learning. Uh, you know, the oil and gas industry is getting into the machine learning, getting into all these data analytics. Yeah. Pretty late in the game, right? Yeah. Um, a lot of the machine learning tools and data analytics tools, they've been around for a long time. But as with any tool, if you don't use it right, it can give you whatever it can yeah. give you whatever conclusion you yeah. want. And so I think there's some care that needs to be taken in terms of what you do with the interpretation that it big time never never take the human out of the out of that sequence. Right. That's right. Yeah. At best, it's a it's an advisor of some kind, mm -hmm. but you got to have a geologist and engineer sitting there yeah. for sure. That, that that will never be removed. I, I totally agree. That's cool, man. I'm excited. Uh, I'm excited to see you at Geolog. Thanks, G. No problem, Troy. I enjoyed the podcast, man.